welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the second Sunday in Ordinary Time, January 16th, 2022. We take a detour from our year C Gospel of Luke in order to explore the wedding feast at Cana. This is a scripture text awash with meaning. From Our Lady's intercessory role to Our Lord's seemingly callous response, we'll unpack the deeper meanings hidden within the text and the abundant Old Testament parallels that reveal a nuptial and new covenant theme. We'll also be remiss to ignore the fact that this gospel reveals God's heart, a heart that overflows with joy and that desires nothing but the best for those He loves. Welcome back to Sunday Dive. I have been gone for a while, so um, yeah, I guess welcome back to me, but welcome back to all of you as well. Um, I um, I was I was I missed an episode unexpectedly a few weeks ago because I was at the Packers game, and then I came back on, uh, down with a really bad cold um, right around Christmas, and um, only recently really got over my symptoms. I had energy and I wanted to record episodes, but I sounded like terrible. Definitely would not want you to have listened to me, to have endured listening to me in my stuffiness. Um, But I apologize for being gone. I am back. And uh, today we are talking about the readings for the second Sunday in Ordinary Time. And um, whereas we are in year C and are typically going to be looking at the gospel of Luke today, the church gives us a peek into John's gospel because we are exploring today the um, the miracle at Cana, the wedding feast at Cana. And so our gospel is from, um, not from Luke, but from John, John chapter two, verses one through 11. And we'll begin our time together by reading our gospel as usual. And I will be reading to you from the new revised standard version. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That was John chapter two, verses one through 11. This is a a fun gospel. I know frequently when I do episodes, I say, that's one of my favorite gospels. And and there's probably um, quite a long list going if you were to write down all my quote unquote favorite gospels, but this is a really good gospel. This is a, a, a fun, a fun one to look at, a profound one to look at. And, uh, so let's dive right into it. Um, 
we we get off right right we we step right off into um the setting right um the third day a wedding in Cana of Galilee we're going to come back to the significance of on the third day cuz that actually clues us into a lot of things going on here so we're going to come back to that but they're at a wedding then they're at Cana in Galilee now there are times in the gospels where the evangelist will tell us the name of a town and they'll say that it's in Galilee or it's in Judea, okay? And remember, Judea, Judea is in the south and it's where Jerusalem is. Galilee is in the north where Nazareth is, for example. And so Jesus actually spent most of his life in Galilee. And um, it, it does not appear that there was, from the information that we have, that there was a Cana in Judea, although perhaps that's why St. John tells us that they were at Cana in Galilee. But another assumption um, that can be made uh, or an assertion that can be made, a proposition, um, one which is made by Craig Keener, um, a very respectable Bible scholar whose, um, whose commentaries I love, love, love to read. He suggests that what John may actually be doing here is um, framing for us the the con in some ways the context of faith um, by by uh, setting our scene in Cana in Galilee because as you move through John as we move through John's gospel we discover that up in the north um, in Galilee the people tend to be more open to our Lord and in the south in Judea our Lord is is really quite openly opposed, okay? So um, Craig Keener makes the case that perhaps what John is trying to show us is that A, Jesus performs his first miracle in Galilee, and B, there is a, a consistency, a, a consistent um, pattern that emerges in John's gospel that in Galilee, our Lord is going to find uh, more openness and more uh, faith. So Cana in Galilee uh, versus Cana, Cana in Judea or or just Judea itself. All right. Um, and we're at a wedding. Um, weddings in, um, in Jewish culture are big festive affairs, big festive affairs. Um, they were, uh, they ideally lasted um, seven days. Okay. Um, they frequently included many guests and did not necessarily require um, RSVPs, okay? Even to this day, this is the situation. So um, I was blessed to go to the Holy Land a few years ago and our guide who is a native um, Roman Catholic Palestinian man um, was telling us when we were in Cana that when he when when you throw a, a wedding today in in Israel, um, you invite a lot of people and you don't ask for RSVPs. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to know who's going to show up. And indeed, still to this day, um, there's, there's parties like every night of the week. Um, so there might be like the main party, but there are parties all week long for wedding festivities. And you don't know who's going to show up uh, when or where um, for, for these different gatherings. And so, um, that's a, that's a helpful context for us in seeing these people, um, in, in our story here running out of wine, right? Keep in mind, they didn't have, um, RSVPs. And even to this day, they don't take RSVPs. So weddings are a big deal. You did not want to run out of food and drink. There was a, there was a sense in which an abundance of food and drink was to be desired, and these were such big affairs, big festive affairs 
that um, uh, we have uh, evidence from ancient texts that if you were a wealthy person, for example, who was getting married, it would not be unusual for you to throw a public banquet for your entire town, okay? A public banquet for your entire town. So this is this is a, a big to-do. And it was kind of the social norm as well. If you got an invitation to a wedding, you did not decline. Like it would, it would perhaps be um, seen as rude to decline an invitation. And and invitations were sent out widely. All right. Um, there was a sense in which if you were invited to a wedding, um, you could assume that you could bring other people along, um, like extended family. Okay. So some people have proposed that perhaps the main invitee in this, uh, to this wedding was our lady, um, because she played such an important role in this scene and by extension, Jesus, and then by extension, Jesus's disciples, um, uh, come to the wedding as well. That's a, that's a very, um, interesting idea, but uh, suffice it to say that even though we can't necessarily prove that, there's a sense in which um, weddings were were big festive affairs that had um, many guests. All right. Now that being said, we can start to understand uh, the the panic that may have ensued with the party planners and um, the the wedding party. Um, when there is no wine, all right? And it is it is Mary, the mother of Jesus, our lady, who comes and delivers this news to our Lord. They have no wine. Let's, let's focus on this for a moment. There's not a sense in which they're running low on wine. Like sometimes when this story is portrayed, it's like they start to realize, oh man, we're running low on wine. No, when... Our lady comes to Jesus. She says they have no wine, like they're out of wine. And this would have been um, uh, a source of uh, humiliation in many ways um, for for the family of uh, of this uh, this wedding party. All right, so they have no wine. Um, it's also interesting to note that men and women um, were typically separated during weddings. Um, I was actually just recently watching um, uh, Fiddler on the Roof and they actually portray this in the wedding scene in um, Fiddler on the Roof that the men and women are separate. All right. So um, the same was true in the time of Jesus. The men and women were uh, separate at weddings. So Our Lady has gone through the uh, effort of seeking out Jesus among the men, okay, in order to deliver this news to him. And what is what does this tell us about Our Lady? There, there's we we learn so much about Jesus from this gospel, but we also learn so much about Our Lady. And the two things um, that we learn, like the two main things in my mind that we learn, um, we learn we learn the true heart of Mary as our mother, uh, and and Jesus as God. Okay, so let's let's look at. Let's look at Lady, Our Lady here for a moment, right? Um, she has grown up with Jesus insofar as she has raised him, right? There's a tradition that, that our Lord has not performed miracles yet up to this point. Um, I find that tradition very compelling. When you look at who Jesus is, he is a man of humility, 
right? And so it wouldn't really be incredibly consistent for him to be uh, performing all kinds of miracles, special kind of secretive miracles um, prior to his public ministry. And so there's a sense in which we can surmise that Our Lady um, believes that Jesus can perform a miracle, but likely has not yet seen him perform a miracle. And she comes to him in this moment and essentially asks him to perform his first miracle in this situation. See, it's not a miracle for her. Um, It's not a miracle, um, you know, for St. Joseph, even though we understand that St. Joseph at this time has passed away. It's not a miracle for, um, you know, health, right? It's certainly a miracle to, uh, in order to um, save face for this family, right? But this is a point of meditation for us that Our Lady is concerned for us and she's concerned about even the small things. Like she she has this tremendous empathy where she can put herself in our shoes and feel what we feel as, as a good mother can, right? This is like a, a, a characteristic of mothers. Empathy, tremendous empathy. And so we see this for Our Lady. So just, this is just, again, a point of, a point of meditation that that which Our Lady asks Jesus to perform his first miracle for is this, this simple lack of wine that tells us so much about who she is, okay? Let's move on. She says, they have no wine and Jesus responds in a way that is tremendously perplexing for most people. He says, oh woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Oh woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, Father Francis Martin, who wrote the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture, um, commentary on the gospel of John, says that um, you can translate this this response of our Lord uh, more literally to be, what is this to you and me? A woman, what is this to you and me? And it's, he says, it's a Semitic expression of distancing. Okay. In other words, like, eh, I don't think I want to get involved here. Right. It's, it's interesting that Jesus just comes out and says this. I, I don't know that I want to get involved here. And he gives a reason. He says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What is he talking about here? Well, we can fast forward through elements of John's gospel where we see Jesus refer to his hour and we can go um, to the last supper and get a very specific idea of Jesus's quote unquote hour. So at John chapter 13, verse one at the, uh, the setting the stage for the last supper, um, the evangelist says that knowing that his hour was come, knowing that his hour was come. Okay. So at the last supper, John tells us his hour had come. And then at John 17, verse one, which is the end of the last supper, the high priestly prayer, this is right before they go out to the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus begins his passion. 
Jesus himself prays, Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. Okay, so what is Jesus's hour? It's his passion. All right. Now, clearly here in the gospel, his hour has not yet come. It's not the time for his passion, but there's a sense in which the key to understanding our Lord's response what is this to you and me, this, this distancing, this, I don't want to get involved. The key to understanding the response is this idea of our, because what our Lord is saying is once I start performing miracles, the ball is going to start rolling. It will put into motion our Lord's public ministry, which will put into motion the act of redemption, which will culminate on the cross. And Jesus says it's not time yet for that. I think we can I think we can take our Lord at his word that in this situation, he was not planning to uh, perform a miracle. And he did not want in some ways to perform a miracle. But we can see the power of our lady's intercession when Jesus quite literally changes his plans because of his mother's request, okay? Let's um, explore um, the the title, if you will, that Jesus uses to refer to his mother. Does he say, mother, what have you to do with me? No, he says, oh, woman. And scholars will note the, the Greek word is um, gune. They'll note that that was not an unusual greeting for a woman. Like it was not um, super rude to call a woman a, a gune. Um but it's a little uh, it's a little odd to call your mother that. Okay, so what might Jesus be doing here? Some scholars recognize in this an allusion to Genesis and to the first woman, okay? Because in Genesis, Adam refers to his wife as the woman, okay? And Eve is often referred to as the woman. In fact, um, we see, for example, in the aftermath of the fall, when God is talking to Adam about what happened, what does he say? He says, the woman that you gave to me, she made me do this, right? Okay, so when we see Adam referring to the woman, that is Eve, right? There's a sense of discord, okay? And it's in the aftermath of the fall. And so if what Jesus is going to do is undo the fall, it's it's no surprise that he's bringing in these illusions and he's referring to his mother, Mary, as the woman, okay, woman, all right? And if when we saw Adam refer to his wife Eve as woman, there was a sense of discord, we can see here that when Jesus uses that title for Mary, on the surface, it seems like there's some discord, right? Um, what have you to do with me, right? <laughs> that, that, that Our Lady and Jesus are kind of not on the same page for a hot second here, right? But that, that kind of apparent discord actually gives way to mutual consent, all right? Because it appears that Our Lady probably picks up on what Jesus is saying here to an extent. I don't, I, and you've heard me say this in various podcasts. I don't believe that our lady had, um, had like supernatural knowledge. I think she had tremendous faith. Um, I, I know I said this in a recent podcast, if not the last podcast that, that I don't believe our lady knew everything that was going on. Um, she just trusted 
in her son. But it seems like there's a sense in which um, she understands what he is saying and she leaves it up to him. Do whatever he tells you. But her consent, in other words, her understanding his hour has not yet come. And if he does this, he, she, she, the, 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 the cycle or the, the necessities of redemption are going to be put into motion. She, it seems to understand that. And when she says, do whatever he tells you, she seems to be saying, I consent to that. And then of course, when Jesus actually performs the miracle, he consents to her wishes. So there's this beautiful kind of mutual consent and um, this, this beautiful um, mutual kind of uh, deference. Our lady deferring to what Jesus desires and Jesus deferring to what our lady desires. And so we see the undoing of that discord, okay? And it will put into motion redemption, that undoing of what happened in the garden of Eden and the discord that was sown between Adam and Eve. Okay. Do whatever he tells you. That's what she says. Do whatever he tells you. Um, I already said, we learned so much about our lady here in this, this gospel. We, we can also see her as a model of tremendous faith and we can see her also as a model of prayer, right? How does she, um, how does she come to Jesus? She comes and she states the problem and then she, she leaves it to him to decide how to handle it. She states the problem and then leaves it to him to decide how to handle it. There's this tremendous trust and this tremendous surrender that is hidden in these two phrases that she exchanges. They have no wine and do whatever he tells you. Again, there's so much that you could meditate upon um, just from those two, those two phrases, those, those few humble words that we have of Our Lady here in John's gospel. Verse six, now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, okay? So we're talking... <laughs> A ton of uh, a ton of water here that we're familiar with the story we know is going to be turned into wine. So at least 120 gallons. <laughs> that is a lot. That is so much wine. Far more wine that would than would be needed for um, this situation. Not to mention that it was typical in the ancient world for wine to be diluted. All right, and so. Um, if Jesus here is is giving them the good strong stuff, which it appears that it is so based on the uh, the steward of the feast assessment of the new wine, um, they have more than enough, more than enough. And we're told that the the servants actually fill these jars to the brim. Okay, so there's these six stone jars, each holding twenty or thirty gallons for Jewish rites of purification. We're going to come back to the significance of that. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. 
and we're told they filled them up to the brim. We can see here um, uh, an example of a response of faith, okay? Um, there's, there's so much depth of meaning here that we can dive into. So they fill them to the brim. And in so doing, they they um, do an act of radical obedience, in, in my opinion, because the act of filling them to the brim was not easy. This would have required going and drawing water, all right, from the well, which was probably, I mean, maybe it was semi-close, but again, we're not talking um, plumbing in people's homes, and let's think about this. Even if there were plumbing in people's homes, like the equivalent of the plumbing that we have, how long do you think it's going to take to fill uh, 120 gallons? And so consider the amount of work that went into this and the servants gladly comply. And so again, we see... um we see the interplay here and the example of what it means to be a disciple. And these are the things that we often gloss over because what we focus on is like, oh, boom, Jesus turns water into wine. So easy, right? No, he asked them to have some skin in the game. And what he requested of them um, took effort and faith on their part. And so oftentimes... When um, we want something of the Lord, he will use it as an opportunity to grow our faith through testing. And this is what he's doing for the servants. He's asking them to do quite a difficult task, filling these six stone jars with uh, water to the brim, at minimum 120 gallons of water, okay? Okay. And they comply, radical obedience. And it gets better, actually. Again, when we explore these readings and we really look at what they say, we uncover the assumptions that we've made about them. I'm not saying the assumptions are wrong, but they might be. So Jesus says, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And then he says to them, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. I was recently, I can't recall if I was listening to a talk or reading a book, but the, the, the author or the speaker that I was listening to um, honed in on this detail and said, we often read this to mean that when they drew it out, it was wine, but the text does not say that. In fact, what we could probably more realistically infer is that they filled the jars of water to the brim and they drew out water, put it into a cup and took it to the steward of the feast. Now, how's the steward going to feel when you say, try this and you drink water? He's going to be like, okay, right? And so it's quite possible, and I think this would be consistent with our Lord's testing, that when the water was turned into wine was some point between the drawing it out and the taking it to the steward of the feast. And so again, the servants are 
uh, doing a tremendous act of radical obedience and expressing a tremendous amount of faith such that things that don't make sense, they comply with the Lord and in their faith, he's able to work a miracle through their faith because of their faith. He's able to, to work a miracle. What if they had said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not taking water to the head steward. Well, can he work a miracle? Our Lord needs faith in order to work miracles. And so I feel, again, I can't, I can't say that the, the typical assumption is wrong, but I see a consistency here in the idea that what the, the servants drew out was still water. And at some point between drawing out the water and taking it to the steward of the feast, that's when the water was turned into wine. There's so much uh, food for thought, food for meditation in our gospel, and we're not even to the end of it. Okay, so he says, draw some out, take it to the steward of the feast. They took it. And when the steward of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, it did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Let's comb through this. So, the steward tastes it. It's phenomenal wine. He's so impressed that he calls the bridegroom, okay? But before he calls the bridegroom, John gives us this interesting detail that seems a little bit obvious, but why does he give it to us? He says the steward did not know where it came from. And uh, theologians point out that within the uh, within the group of people that are recipients of this miracle, there are those who recognize the miracle, like the servants, right? There are those who do not recognize the miracle, like the steward of the feast. At least initially, he doesn't recognize the miracle, right? Because he comes to, he calls the bridegroom, believing that the bridegroom has provided the wine. But among those who recognize and among those who do not recognize, all present benefit from the miracle. And is this not true in life? Um, God does good things for us, whether we recognize it or not. And oftentimes we are so um, in our own business and about our own world, in our own world, that we don't recognize the beautiful things that God does for us. This is why it's tremendously helpful in the spiritual life um, to do something called a daily examine. You can uh, you can Google it and it'll bring things up. If you want to get more specific, you can Google Ignatian examine. Okay, and one of the one of the things uh, the key things that you do in an Ignatian examine is recognize the blessings of the day and thank God for those blessings. And what is this doing? This is taking our own cataracts out of our eyes, if you will, and choosing to be the person who recognizes the miracle, who knows where the wine came from. The wine comes from the Lord. And regardless of if we recognize where they come from or not, the objectivity of the fact remains that good things come from God. 
And so we can choose to recognize that and even, and even use that as an opportunity to bolster our faith, right? God is constantly doing miracles in our life. He's constantly, he's constantly uh, smoothing out our path, right? And even if he doesn't smooth out our path in the way that we might expect, like if our path is strewn with suffering, there's this paradox and our, our God is a God of paradoxes, right? In which the rough path actually is the faster path to holiness, right? And so even though it doesn't look like a smooth road, in some ways, if we look at it through the eyes of our Lord, it is the smooth path that he is offering us. We need to have eyes to see, uh, to recognize the miracles of our Lord. So the steward is impressed by the wine. He calls the bridegroom. Why is this significant? Because it tells us that the bridegroom was responsible for providing the wine. And Jesus takes on the role of the bridegroom here. Um, we're going to come back to this in a moment when we survey two of the overarching themes of our gospel. We're kind of getting, we're, we're diving into the details of our gospel, but in a moment here, when we close out our time together, I'm going to look at two overarching themes in our gospel. And one of them is a nuptial theme. Okay. So we'll re-explore this idea, but nevertheless, suffice it to say that the bridegroom was responsible for providing the, the wine. And so what Jesus is doing here is taking on the role of the bridegroom. The, the, the steward declares to the bridegroom, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. What does this tell us about Jesus? Jesus is not like every other man. He's completely different. And how is he different? He gives the best. He doesn't shortchange us. He doesn't, um, in some ways, he doesn't even look at a hierarchy of goods. Okay, this is what, uh, this is kind of the idea I, I love to explore when I say that we learn so much about God's heart here in our gospel. Um, I mean, think about it. This is Jesus's first miracle. And what does he do? He turns water into wine. I was, um, I was doing a, uh, a small group for um, some middle schoolers over the summer. And we were, um, we were watching The Chosen and the, the episode of, of The Wedding Feast at Canaan. We were talking about it afterwards. And, uh, and I told them, um, and this is kind of at the risk of, of seeming somewhat, um, sacrilegious, I suppose, but this is like, this is kind of like the equivalent of God, like multiplying cookies or something. I mean, like really, when you think about it, I, I remember as a kid, gosh, I can't remember what the movie is, but it's a movie about like a, a, a kid that, um, you know, gets a genie and he has his three wishes there's a scene where he like wishes for like an infinite amount of candy and, and candy just starts raining down from heaven. And as a child, you're like, that's, this is fantastic. I got to remember that, you know, in case I ever get uh, my three wishes from my genie. I mean, this is kind of what's going on here. Jesus's first miracle is to turn water into wine. I remember as a high schooler, I uh, I had a an after school job, 
And um, I was um, typically working with other high schoolers or college students. Um, Some of these um, people were quite worldly. And um, I I was having a conversation with um, one girl one time who was um, exceptionally worldly, you might say. Um, very, very kind and and fun to be around, but but definitely exceptionally worldly. And some I can't remember what the context of the conversation was, but something was said that led me to remark, well, Jesus's first miracle was to turn water into wine. And the girl stopped dead in her tracks, turned around, like whipped around and looked at me and said, are you serious? And I was in shock because I, I was like, I really thought this was common knowledge. But she had never heard that before, which led me to believe that she had probably never heard really much of the gospel at all. But she had never heard before that Jesus turned water into wine And she was completely dumbfounded. And she looked at me with a dumbfounded look on her face for a couple of seconds and then said something to the effect of, now that's my kind of God. And I always remember that that situation. And I'm always incredibly grateful for that situation Because it goes to show how used to our God we have become and how sometimes it takes a complete outsider to help us fully grasp the insanity of our God. I mean, it is pretty crazy. Like she was basically like, shut the front door. Jesus turned water into wine. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) He did. And she was like, that's amazing. And I I can't assume too much, but there was a, I could see that her, the, her, like the, the gears in her brain were turning. And it was fascinating because I think in that moment, whether or not that was like one of the first things she'd ever heard about this man, Jesus, who some people say is God. I think in that moment, hearing that Jesus turned water into wine as his first miracle, she had a sense of who, like what kind of man this guy is. Um, He's a man that can kind of relate to her. And he's a man that appreciates happiness, human happiness. All right to turn water into wine, to use all of his omnipotence in order to to bring about uh, joy, to bring about the good things of human life, to bring about an abundance of, of good earthly resources, right? Sometimes we've got ourselves convinced that God is only concerned about like the things of our salvation. But if God was only concerned about the things of our salvation, he would have not turned water into wine. 
anybody who tries to make the case that God is a killjoy and the vast majority of people, like if they have a, a problem with our God, if you really, if you really dig deep with them on the problem that they have with our God, it's, it's they think God is a killjoy, right? He's just like, he just forbids everything that is uh, joyful, pleasurable, you know, all the best things in life. Clearly they've never read the gospel of John. You cannot say that a God who turns water into wine is a killjoy. It's just, you just can't. There's another interesting thing going on here. Um, uh, Craig Keener points out that um, wedding gifts were actually considered to be loans. Okay. And in there we have to, we have to clarify a little bit what, um, what the Jewish tradition um, means by wedding gifts. So by wedding gifts, they didn't necessarily mean like something for the couple, but like um, providing for the needs of the wedding. Okay. So like um, or giving a wedding gift would be like, you know, helping um, like in, in using our modern day, like language would be like helping, um, you know, pay for the the reception, um, you know, the, the rent on the, the, the room and, um, the catering and, and those kinds of things, et cetera. So, so according to the Mishnah, um, rabbinic tradition, wedding gifts were considered a loan. So like if you gave a wedding gift to your best man, that it was expected that your best man would give you a wedding gift back. Like if you helped pay for his wedding, it was, it was considered like a loan and he was expected to help pay for your wedding. Okay. Except so wedding gifts were considered loans unless, 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 unless the gift was wine. And then it was considered a quote, act of kindness that did not need to be repaid. Isn't that fascinating? So not only does Jesus provide for the needs of this wedding, but he provides for the needs of the wedding that are not, that do not have to be repaid. It's, it's an act of kindness, complete gift. It's so fascinating. I love that little detail that, that Craig Keener points out. Our God is not a killjoy. He loves us so much as to turn water into wine. It's truly amazing. I'm going to stop hitting that over and over again because it's for you to, to continue to continue meditating upon in prayer and to hold on to when the devil tells you that God is a killjoy who doesn't want you to be happy. That is not true. Remember, when you have a temptation to believe that God doesn't want you to be happy, you just remember John chapter two and that wedding at Cana when Jesus used all of his omnipotence to make wine. It's amazing. Let's turn to the two overarching themes real briefly here to close out our time together. A nuptial theme that I already alluded to and a new covenant theme. In some ways, those are kind of like the same thing, but that's the the name I'm choosing to give to these two themes, a nuptial theme and a new covenant theme. Let's explore the nuptial theme. Both of these themes, I should say, come from the first four words of our gospel on the third day. Immediately, these allude to these two themes. So let me break this down for you. The third day, If we look at John's gospel in the first two chapters of John's gospel, you will discover him 
frequently talking about days. So for example, he opens his gospel at John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, okay? In the beginning. So the first day, okay? And also this immediately points us back to Genesis, right? And the first two chapters of Genesis are formulated around days, right? Okay, so clearly John is alluding to Genesis and drawing on Genesis. Okay, so this is a very fair assumption from the very beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning, so we have the first day, okay? Then if we skip ahead to John chapter 1, verse 29, we read the next day, all right? And then John gives us some some narrative. If we jump ahead to chapter 1, verse 35, John again tells us the next day and then gives us some narrative. And then we can jump ahead to John chapter 1, verse 43. And again, the evangelist gives us the next day and some more narrative. Finally, we get to our gospel, John chapter 2, verse 1, and he says on the third day. Okay, so let's break this down. So we have in the beginning, which is day one. Then we have the next day, which is day two. Again, we have the next day, day three. And another time we have the next day, day four. Then we get on the third day. So we have four days. And then we read at chapter two, verse one, on the third day. Add those together. And we find ourselves at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, on the seventh day, the seventh day, okay? Now, the seventh day we understand to be uh, the day of God's rest, right? The culmination and climax of creation. God creates in six days, but I argue and other theologians argue that you have to include the seventh day as a day of creation insofar as it's the climax of creation. Thomas Aquinas tells us that it shows us the purpose for which we were created, right? To be in union with God as God is in union with himself when he rests in himself on the seventh day, okay? But we can also turn to the second creation account, which hones in on the creation of Adam and Eve to discover more about the seventh day. And Dr. John Bergsma really um, um, dives into uh, this idea here um, in in, um, his book on uh, his overview of the New Testament, okay? So he makes the argument that if um, Adam is put into a deep sleep and Eve is taken from his side and formed from his side, from the rib of his side on the sixth day. And then Adam is awoken in order to meet his bride. He's likely awoken on the seventh day. And so Dr. Bergsma, who I was a student of, makes the argument that Adam and Eve met on the seventh day and Therefore, we can assume that in addition to the rest on the seventh day, there was in fact a wedding on the seventh day, okay? So then it's really fascinating when we find ourselves in John's gospel, structuring the evangelist, structuring his gospel, the opening chapters of his gospel off of the opening chapters of the Bible itself, the book of Genesis, right? And we have a wedding on the seventh day. Very, very fascinating. Another fascinating parallel is that we've already touched on this. Woman, right? 
enters into the world or, or, or comes on the scene in the book of Genesis on the seventh day. Woman comes on the scene in John's gospel on the seventh day as well. Who is that woman? Our lady, right? Mary. So what does this tell us? This is launching Jesus's ministry. It occurs on the seventh day of this kind of new creation that John is proposing. It's at a wedding. Jesus is doing the role of the bridegroom. Our lady appears to be taking on the role of the bride, the role of the new Eve. What does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus's ministry is nuptial. And with that, I could launch into like six separate hour-long podcasts where I further make my point, but I will not. I'll leave you hanging um, insofar as you get a little nibble of, of something tremendously beautiful to chew on. I will tell you, though, that if you want to know more about this idea, you can look to Dr. Um, Brant Petrie's book, Jesus the Bridegroom. He has this whole book that goes into the idea of Jesus being the bridegroom and Jesus's ministry being nuptial. But suffice it to say that when we talk about Jesus's ministry being nuptial, what we come to understand is that God is a God of abundance. Jesus is a God of abundance. He's a man of abundance. So he wants to be close to us, but it's not enough for him to just be close to us. He wants to be really close to us. And that's the the implication of this nuptiality, right? Because let's think about the, the nuptial relationship between a husband and a wife. What is the implication? Like really close, 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 close. Jesus wants to be close to us, not just close though, like really close. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there. The second theme, the overarching thing, is this idea of new covenant. Okay, and again, those first four words of our gospel hone in on this. On the third day, we can turn to Exodus chapter 19, um, verse 11, to read about the third day. All right, it uh, it, it tells us um, uh, at uh, Exodus chapter 19, um, verse 11, um, the Lord is speaking to Moses and he says, be ready by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai. I'll actually read this whole passage for you so you get the full context of it. So this is the, the Israelites have just been freed from um, slavery in Egypt and God is leading them to Mount Sinai. So we'll start reading at Exodus chapter 19, verse 10 and following. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people round about saying, take heed that you do not go up into the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to get put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready by the third day. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain quaked greatly. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. If we could, we're, would continue reading here um, past um, verse 19 of chapter 19, we would come to the 10 commandments and the other handful of laws that God gives to the people as um, as the, the content of the covenant, if you will, because this is what God is doing on Mount Sinai. He's making a covenant with his people through Moses, okay? So when Jesus begins his public ministry on the quote unquote, on the third day, there's a sense in which John the evangelist is not only hearkening to Genesis, but he's also hearkening to Exodus. And he's saying that Jesus, in addition to instituting this new nuptial covenant, is also in introducing or instituting a new, a new covenant that will replace or at least transform the Mosaic covenant, okay? And Jesus's very miracle serves as a sign of this. Why do I say that? Because scholars see um, deeper meaning in verse six of our gospel. There were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification, okay? Where do the Jewish rites of purification come from? They come from the Mosaic law. They are a part of the Mosaic covenant that we get in Exodus chapter 19. And so when Jesus takes these things that were set apart for Jewish purification, they were items set apart for the keeping of the Mosaic covenant, and he uses them for a new purpose. He repurposes them. He, his miracle serves as a sign of how he will transform the purity laws. He will transform the Mosaic laws, okay? And there's a sense in which two um, theologians see um, the wedding feast at Cana and his miracle there as a, as a, a looking ahead to, as a foreshadowing of the Eucharist, right? Because at Cana, he turns water into wine. And at the Last Supper, he turns wine into his precious blood, and whereas in the Mosaic covenant, in the old covenant, you had to do these things like ritual washing in order to be purified. Now, what do we do? We consume the very body and blood of our Lord. And it's that which purifies and transforms us. Okay. So our Lord's miracle serves as a sign of how he will transform the purity laws, how he's instituting this new covenant with these new rites of purification and transformation that transform those mosaic rites of purification, okay? It's also interesting too, because in the context of where we're looking at Exodus 19, we also hear at verse eight, a little before what we were looking at, but still again, in the context, the people answer the Lord, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And in that phraseology, we see a parallel with Our Lady's words. What does she say? Do whatever he tells you. What did the people of Israel say uh, uh, in Exodus? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay? So we see this, these fascinating parallels that show this kind of, this new mosaic covenant that our Lord is going to, to, to institute um, and he's going to institute in the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the is the the climax of covenant history in the scriptures. All right. Um, as I as I found so much um, um, fascination in in the Mishnah, which tells us that all wedding gifts were alone except except the gift of wine. 
It's also fascinating to note that according to um, according to the rabbinic literature, some Torah obligations, so so Torah meaning law, right? Some Torah obligations were dispensed of for the wedding party during a wedding. Okay, so there were there were some mosaic laws, some Torah laws that were dispensed of during weddings. One of these, for example, was the wearing of tefillin. Okay, and tefillin, you're probably, might not be familiar with the word, but you're probably familiar with the idea. Tefillin are those boxes that contain scrolls, little scrolls of the scriptures that Jews will wear. They'll wear one on their uh, one on their head and one on their arm, okay? So um, according to the rabbis, um, this is one example of, of certain Torah obligations being dispensed of insofar as the, the, the men of the wedding party, because it was the men who would wear the tefillin, the men of the wedding party did not have to wear the tefillin during the wedding. Okay, so there's also this fascinating um, congruency between old covenant practice and what Jesus is instituting insofar as uh, in weddings, in old covenant Jewish weddings, some of Torah was dispensed of. And what do we see a foreshadowing of here at this wedding at Cana? We see a foreshadowing of some Torah being dispensed of when Jesus is going to, to institute the new covenant and transform purity laws. What does this mean for us? This means we have entered into the third day, right? The third day, which is a new wedding, a new covenant, the old law, has been dispensed of. And in its place, we have a law of abundance and a law of joy. And the prophets foretold this. We can look to Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. The days are coming when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. When is this going to happen? When the Messiah comes. And what do we see the Messiah doing? Instituting his public ministry by by using his omnipotence to bring forth an abundance of wine. We can also look to Joel chapter three, verse 18. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. Lord, we praise you and thank you because you have allowed us to be born and to live and to thrive in the age of the new covenant when the mountains are dripping with wine. Open our eyes so that we can see that you are a God of abundance, you are a God of joy, and you are a God that loves us more than we can possibly imagine. 